Hear now a word from the book of Esther. Now there was a Jew in the citadel of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Yar and Sheminchi of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with King Jeconia of Judah, of whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried away. Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. The girl was fair and beautiful, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in the citadel of Susa in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. The girl pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetic treatments and her portion of food. And with seven chosen maids from the king's palace, Anne advanced her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not reveal her people or kindred, for Mordecai had charged her not to tell. Every day, Mordecai would walk around the front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My girls love to read graphic novels. Now, your first thought might be that sounds a little racy, but really, graphic novels are very much akin to comic books. My dad, in particular, loved comic books. And as a kid, if he was going to the grocery store, I made it my job to go with him. Because I could always talk him into buying the Archie and Jughead comic books that were at the cash register. Do you remember those? Better yet, how many of you remember those salvation tracks from the 80s? They were small and black and white and one other color. They would have names like Flight 144 or Set Free. The beast, it's your life. I feel like whenever we ate at Quincy's Steakhouse on Sundays after church for lunch, there was always a track left in the bathroom or on the window ledge near where you would wait to be seated. It will surprise no one here who knows me that I collected these and read them with great fear and fervor. Later, my comic reading veered toward a much less refined mad magazine. How many mad magazine readers do I have in here? Mm -hmm. Because in middle school, the more inappropriate it is, the more hysterical. After I gave up mad, I turned to Calvin and Hobbes. I will not entertain anyone's opinion that there is a better comic series because there's not. Now, as an adult, my comic reading has pretty much died out. 
I'll look at the occasional New Yorker cartoon, but now my reading is mostly books with no pictures. But graphic novels for young people fill bookshelves and backpacks. Regina Tegmeyer's book, Smile, Sisters, Guts, are wildly popular just like New Kid, Dog Man, Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Sojourner's magazine published an article, How Artists Are Using Comics to Tell Bible Stories. Noticing the rise of graphic novels, there's a whole host of biblical graphic novels aimed at telling old stories in a new and adventurous way. The article asks, how has a medium known more for superheroes and fantastic adventures become a home for daring and profound takes on Christianity? One of the comic book authors supposes that the great appeal of comics is that they take us to another world. And the world of the Bible is as good as fantasy because it's so alien to us. Think about that. The great appeal of comics is that it takes us to another world. Well, the book of Esther would make a great comic book or graphic novel. I mean, all the elements are there. A displaced people. An evil, plotting villain. His name is Haman. He has an ax to grind, I'll tell you that. We have a reluctant hero, or in this case, a heroine, Esther, who is bold and also humble. Then there's the sidekick or the aide, the helper, the Yoda character, right? The wise, learned, patient Mordecai. And then finally, you have a slow-witted authority figure, King Xerxes II. He seems to have no clue what's actually going on in his kingdom. So all the elements for a really action-packed story are there. Now, just because I'm not going to assume that we all remember what takes place in Esther, let's give a little quick history review. Esther's story begins in the diaspora. That means that her story takes place after the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen to Assyria, and then the southern kingdom fell to Babylon. The Jewish people were living scattered from the Holy Land. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The land had been raised. The temples come and go. And and soon Babylon is overtaken by Persia. So when Cyrus, the Persian king, takes over, Cyrus is actually a pretty lenient ruler. He allowed the Jewish people the opportunity to return to their homeland. But keep in mind that it had been centuries since the Jews were displaced. So many of the Jews stayed. They had made homes where they were. They practiced their faith in synagogues and in home communities. There are other stories in our Bible like Ezra and Nehemiah who tell of Jews who did go back. They went back with the emphasis to rebuild. 
But even for the Jews who remained in exile, the longing to return to Zion never went away. <clears throat> Excuse me, away. There's always a piece of home that stays lodged in the heart of exiles, right? A longing to return to a place because the land is part of who you are. This is especially true of a people whose central story is of coming out of exile into a land of promise. But you know, Esther is kind of an odd book. I know some of you know that Esther is the only book in scripture that never mentions God. Never. Not even once. In fact, its placement within the Hebrew and Christian scriptures are fiercely debated because of that. Now, most of the time, we infer God's presence in the book as we are likely meant to. But in the context of other Hebrew writings of the time, like Ezra and Nehemiah, Esther presents us with a different behind the scenes. No mention of God working on these people's behalf. Esther gives us different sort of characters, Jews who are not seen as, as necessarily faithful. Esther is a story of deliverance, a story of salvation. The central Jewish narrative is grounded in how God is the God who hears the cry of the people and God delivers, God saves. I mean, think of the Old Testament in its entirety. The basic structure is this. The people covenant with God and make promises to be faithful. But then the people stray and trouble ensues. They cry out, God hears, God saves. This pattern happens over and over and over Throughout their history, God's people, the Jews, are known by certain things. They only eat certain foods. They practice certain laws. I mean, they wear their hair and their beards a certain way. In fact, Jews were told they are to be a light to the nations. Remember that? So their distinctness and their uniqueness is meant to be a way for other nations and other peoples to encounter God. Their worship and their way of being in the world are the same thing. This was their marker as a people, their identity. When Assyria captured the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes of Israel, of the 12, 10 were completely dispersed and lost. This was in 722 BCE. By the time the Persian army defeats Babylon, it is 539 BCE. Centuries have passed. Is it possible then that Jews living in the Persian empire weren't all that different or set apart than everyone else? I think that's an important question to ask given that there is no mention of devotion to the Lord. Nothing in this particular book of scripture. 
Our most common reading of this story is one of a heroic woman who decides to help her people to stand up and to deliver them from harm and evil. We have inferred between the lines that God's presence is there, that it is God who must have given her the power and the courage to deliver them. As Mordecai says, how do you know, Esther, that you weren't chosen to be queen for just this moment of action, for this exact reason to save your people? So Esther is a salvation story. But as a Jewish book of scripture, it's lacking several things. As the story unfolds, there is no mention of Sabbath keeping. There is no mention of celebration of Passover. There is no prophetic promise. There is no mention of prayer. The book as a whole never describes Mordecai as particularly pious or the Jews in Susa as particularly observant. Think of the book of Daniel where being Jewish is also outlawed. Daniel still prays. Daniel is bold to proclaim his loyalty to the God of Israel. No such declaration exists in Esther. John Anthony Dunn has written a short book called Esther and Her Elusive God. And in it, he notes the complete lack of anything that is particular to the Jewish faith and heritage. He finds no longing for Zion, no urge to go and rebuild the temple, no pleading for God to hear the people's cry. And in times of fear and distress, observing Passover the supreme act of God's mighty act of salvation for this people would have been paramount for action for them to go forward. And that is also remarkably silent in this book. Dunn concludes, we have no reason to assume that Esther or Mordecai have much faith at all. The people of God portrayed in Esther appear to have experienced a decline in faith and a decline of religious adherence to the God of their ancestors. If Dunn is correct, if Esther describes a people of declining faith, declining worship, Declining religious devotion to God, that needs no comic rendition or graphic novel adaption because that is not foreign or ancient or alien to us at all. What then do we do with Esther? a book that never mentions God, a book about a people whose ties to God are very hard to see. Is this a story of deliverance? Are the people saved? Is there any good or promise of God in this book? Well, despite the startling lack of what Esther has or doesn't, the book does offer a rather surprising and startling promise. 
In the story of Esther, what we see is God's commitment to stand by God's people when they are at their covenant-keeping worst and see them through anyway. Think about that. God's commitment to stand by God's people when they are at their covenant-keeping worst and see them through anyway. In other words, the promise of God is salvation anyway. The book of Esther speaks to God's incredible grace and fierce desire that not even one should be lost. That salvation is not reserved for only those who pray for it. Salvation is not only just for those who make sure to adhere to the covenant promises. Salvation is not only just for those who worship. My God. Goodness, that is an unnerving truth about God's commitment to a people who have fallen woefully short of the promise to be faithful. You see, the reassurance that Esther's story gives is that God sees the people through, even in the lack of any recognizable faithfulness or commitment, and gives salvation and deliverance in spite of or anyway. God not only intervenes, God intervenes precisely at a point when no human virtue or piety would compel God to do so, where the only hope is sheer divine intervention and the intention that God has to bless, save, and protect regardless of whether it is acknowledged by those who were saved at all. Salvation anyway. What a beautiful promise. You know, I don't read comics anymore. And I never saw a salvation track with a title, Salvation Anyway. But in my Bible, there are no pictures. But when I read Esther, now that's all I can see. Salvation anyway. In the name of the one who hears and acts. Amen.